0: Hello. Welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. Uh, this episode, I'm really happy to bring my conversation that I had with Juliet Hooker. Uh, Juliet is the Royce Family Professor of Teaching Excellence in Political Science at Brown University. Uh, she's a political theorist that has many of her main interests in racial justice, Latin American political thought, uh, black political thought, and many others. She is the author of the current book, Black Grief, White Grievance, Democracy, and the Problem of Political Loss, uh, which is the book that we talk about in this conversation. Uh, We start the conversation by talking about why racial justice is so prominent now, despite racial injustice always existing. So what is it about this moment that we're talking a lot about racial uh, justice or racial injustices? We talk about loss, what it is, how it's political, and we also talk about anticipatory loss. Uh, we ask the question, Is are we essentializing race? Do we focus on it too much? What's the right amount of focus? How much should we be focusing on this? It's a really nice uh, bit of the conversation there. We talk about um, many white Americans and anticipatory loss. We talk about symbolic and material loss, democracy and political loss, class and inequality, how civil rights is used today, uh, black maternal health, public grievance, and many other topics. Uh, I really, really enjoyed uh, her book and the conversation because uh, her her book really pushed some of my thinking, um, which was great. I always love it when books do that, when they, when they push my thinking and they make me think about something differently. And she was an absolute delight to have uh, a conversation with. I really enjoyed her way of explaining things, her way of navigating you know, topics that aren't um, easy to have all the time. And I think she has a, a really, really great voice for talking about these issues. Uh, obviously, her brilliance and her research shines through. And so it really was a a, a big, big treat to have this conversation with her. Uh, as always, you can find this conversation and all of the conversations at convergindialogues.substack.com. Also on YouTube, get over there, subscribe, like, share. Uh, much appreciated to everyone that does. And uh, now I bring you Juliet Hooker. I am here with Juliet Hooker. Uh, Juliet, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I am uh, greatly looking forward to speaking with you.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation as well.
0: Yes, yes, for for sure. Uh, so you have a you have a book out. It is called Black Grief, White Grievance. The Politics of Loss. This is out through Princeton, Uh, and so I'm excited to talk with you all about this. Uh, Before we do, why don't you tell listeners uh, who you are, uh, what your professional academic background is, and uh, what you're currently up to.
1: So I am currently the Royce Professor of Teaching Excellence in Political Science at Brown. I am a political theorist, and I work Uh, Primarily on questions of racial justice, uh, Black political thought, Latin American political thought, and um, just thinking about citizenship, belonging, you know, how we come to form bonds of solidarity. And I've been, um, you know, doing this work for quite a while. And this latest book really came out of um, trying to think about that moment when the protests erupted in Ferguson and the um, emergence of this very visible protest movement and then the sort of backlash to that, you know, followed by the Trump presidency, things like January 6th. And so it really is about thinking through how, you know, it's the result of trying to think through over the past couple of years, what are the things that are Driving contemporary racial politics in the U.S. right now.
0: Mm, yeah, no, that's that's great. Obviously, there are uh, heated topics for people of different uh, backgrounds and persuasions, and so uh, it will be fun to wade through the waters with you. So, you <laughs> um, I guess the I guess one just kind of jumping off point before we talk about uh, loss. You talk about the idea of loss a lot. I want to get to that. What do you think it is about uh currently that is so uh particularly animating for people? You know, we've had racial injustice forever, right? For a long time uh since the country was was been in existence and prior. But you mentioned Ferguson, which was what was that 2015, is that right? I think that's right. Um and then obviously 2020 was 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 a was a big year. Um, et cetera, all the way up to current, um, you know, there was racial injustice before 2015. Um, but it does seem, though, like there was less, I guess, eyeballs on it or there was less discussion about it. Doesn't mean it didn't happen or exist. But what do you think it is about this moment now uh, of why people are, you know, A, interested or talking about it and, and, and B, I guess, so animated about it?
1: So I'll say a couple of things. One is, you know, as you say, there's been racial injustice throughout the history of the United States. And there has been both mobilization to um, keep uh, racially hierarchical and unjust status quo and mobilization to change that um, throughout the history of the country. I think we were in a moment, in, um, you know, in the at the start of the 21st century, if you will, um, where there was a lot of hope that the U.S., particularly with the election um, of Barack Obama, you know, the first non-white president, that the U.S. was really in this perhaps this post-racial moment, where a lot of the countries. Uh, you know histories of of racial uh tension and division um had been overcome and i think the backlash to um the obama presidency the rise of the tea party a real radicalization in some ways um of 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 certain people by his presidency led to this moment really of of, of backlash. And at the same time, I think that the juxtaposition of having a white president, a black president, I mean, in office at the same time as you had this ongoing issue, right, which didn't just um, start with Michael Brown and Ferguson or Trayvon Martin. It had been ongoing of police violence against Um, black people, that that juxtaposition made people really say, what is happening here? And then, you know, the sort of very militarized response to the protesters in Ferguson and those images of, you know, people being tear gassed and these, you know, military, um, these police in in this military style gear against protesters, I think really started to bring attention um, to this issue. And then, of course, you have. The emergence of the movement for Black Lives and this really sustained protest movement, which we hadn't really seen, um, at least around racial justice issues, um, really for for um, for at least at that scale, had not been seen um, in in some time. And so I think all of this, you know, was in the background. And then you have right the um, the pandemic and, you know, folks are at home, um, there's time to pay attention and the killing of George Floyd happens. And I think this is really something that really, you know, mobilized a lot of people and you have these massive demonstrations. And I think now we're, you know, we're seeing both that, that for a lot of folks who, who, um, you know, it really became, um, I think, galvanized into thinking about racial justice that is ongoing. But you also have a lot of people whose response was to say, you know, this is going too far. And so we also are in this moment of backlash, I think, against that that moment of mobilization. Mm.
0: And this is very interesting how you know, I was you know, I'm old enough to remember some of the stuff that happened in the early '90s around racial injustice. Uh, I'm not old enough to remember stuff in the <laughs> '60s or '70s, but uh, there are certain kind of moments, or these kind of big moments, where we they kind of break through to kind of a national attention or a certain time frame. And <clears throat> it's interesting how, yeah, sort of with 2015, but really, yeah, after 2020, and and just kind of. I feel like a lot of these discussions around race and racial injustice have – just have a, a lot of legs. And I'm sure there's some uh, impact of the internet and social media, et cetera, of course. But uh, I, I think your uh, points there are really nice because it's it's this idea of this juxtaposition, which I think makes a lot of sense of you know, – we're having one way in which the country <laughs> – I mean, I always thought it was a little silly for people to say a post-racial society. I don't know how realistic that is. I think even Obama came out and was like, "Ah, I don't know how realistic that is either. But um, it may be aspirationally. But uh, yeah, and then that kind of, you know, kind of immediate backlash. And, you know, I mean, I know Obama has – President Obama has, you know, had criticisms from all sides. And then many people say he wasn't – he didn't do enough for, you know, African-Americans or for certain – Certain uh, people of color, and so, and then other people say you did too much. So it's just really interesting that someone that was not radical in many ways <laughs> got so much uh, backlash, which is interesting. So let's talk about this idea of of, of loss. So the, the the subtitle for the book is the politics of loss. So so how do you define loss, and 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 with that, how that's more than grief or suffering? You, you make a particular distinction of what loss is and and how it's political, right? So I guess the question would be there is well couldn't you have loss and it be non-political? So yeah, what's that distinction between grief and suffering and and how is loss uh political for 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 you?
2: This is a really
1: good question. So I mean, I think loss is a you know, it's an experience, a human experience, right? We have all experienced loss in some way. Um, You know, it can be something from the death of a loved one to I mean, we just in the news right now, right, the earthquake in Morocco, natural disasters, climate disasters. Mm -hmm. Um, We've also all, you know, maybe lost an election um, or had or candidates not win. So there are many forms of loss. And in this book, I'm particularly concerned not with um, all those kinds of losses, but with political loss in particular. And I argue that um, political loss is a category that we can think about um, in the following way. So losses in part become political because people mobilize around them. So, you know, it's not Always clear that something will become a political issue, and often activists have to make that visible in order for um, for something to be taken seriously. So, if you think about something like mobilization um, around AIDS during the height of the AIDS crisis, right? That was a really um, important moment of activism where where folks were saying, "Look, this isn't just this, you know, individual." Um, thing that's happening this is a um a problem that the state needs to address. This is the result of 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 lack of care um and concern because of who's primarily dying and so there was all of this activism that made this um this instance of loss something that um you know that people were making the case that we should all care about. So that's one way, I think, in which losses become political. Another way in which a loss is political is if it's the result of state action or inaction. So, you know, state action is pretty clear, right? If you have agents of the state who create, um, who cause harm in some way, right? That's a pretty clear example of of loss. Um, Inaction is... Um, also a way in which something becomes political, right? So if you think about, um, you know, let's say there is contamination um, from toxic chemicals and the, the state chooses not to do a cleanup or doesn't let people know before they move into that area. right? There's ways in which the refusal to act is also what makes a loss political. Um, the other way I think in which I, I talk about um, losses as political is when they're the result of these kind of um, structural forces. So they might look to be individuals. So you might think, for example, one of the, you know, the things that I talk about in the book are um, uh, is an example of W.B. Du Bois who uses loses his son as a result of diphtheria. And of the denial of medical care, adequate medical care because of segregation. And so something like this isn't just an individual instance of loss. It's the result of these wider um, patterns of injustice that then lead to um, these individual losses. So these are the kinds of things that I am referring to when I talk about um, political losses. And it's not just. Grief, because when I'm talking about loss, I'm talking about, you know, some an experience of harm of, of, um, you know, of injury that people then mobilize around and that they make a claim about. Right. So, um, you know, another way in which I talk about loss in the book is that, you know, it can in some cases losses that people mobilize around are anticipatory, Mm -hmm. right? They haven't actually happened. Mm -hmm. So if you think about, um, for example, um, people today who are mobilized by things like Great Replacement Theory or who are mobilized by the changing demographics of the US, they're making a claim that they're being displaced in some way, right, by the changing um, composition of the country, but that isn't the case yet. So it's a form of anticipatory loss Mm. um, that, that people are being mobilized Mm. by Um, and it's, you know, and this is, and so people might grieve, right. Um, Something that they, they think is, is being lost, but it's not just grief because one of the things that I talk about in the book is this, the, 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 the fact that political loss involves often right this um political mobilization around um, around around harm or injury so um so it's the move from grief to grievance that is often um what you see in political loss right that people then become activists um, in order to try to, to get some response, um, to get some redress for their losses. So if you think about, um, you know, the mothers of the movement, the women who lost children to police violence, and then become activists in order to um, to try to, to bring attention to that problem. Or think about the um, the kids from Parkland and their parents who become activists for gun rights in the wake of deadly shootings. Right, so this isn't just it is people who are grieving, but they're also doing something else.
0: I like how you explain the the differences there and and how it's it it kind of um it kind of has its uh, way of uh, positioning itself within a kind of a political system. Obviously, there are groups and there are individuals that are at play within a political system, but I think that framing is is helpful to see kind of the the whole kind of gestalt of it. So you start the book by talking about white folks, right, and uh, and 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 not always in in the, in the best ways, right, which is is probably fair in some regards. I guess one 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 before we get to the that part of it, I, I guess a question I was. I was thinking about, this is a kind of a a preamble to this is. So this is kind of your wheelhouse more than is mine. So you can, you can answer this very, very well. I was, I assume, but many people will say, listen, well, there's some people that, you know, kind of just deny the concept of race. Some people that maybe uh, go the other way with it. But do you think that there is a, um, you know, Looking at certain issues or looking at people or groups through the lens of race is is one lens, and and some people may say that that is the ultimate lens, that is the most important, and other people would say the exact opposite that we 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 should we should get, we got to move away from doing that. So, in your mind, um, I guess, how, how do you tackle this? Right? How how important is race currently? And how important should it be um, and, and why is it important to look at some of these issues such as loss or political mobilization or other things? Um, important to see through loss as opposed to um, socioeconomics or gender or uh, certain other types of status. Why do you think race is, is essential I guess in this way or, or is it or how much is it? What do you think about that uh, framing?
2: That's a very good question.
1: So um, I think I would say that, you know, personally, I I think about these issues in my work um, from an intersectional perspective, right? So I don't think that there's only one um form of structural injustice or inequality that shapes our lives. They're all, you know, there are many of them and and um and they affect people in different ways. Some of us are privileged in some ways and and um, subordinated, marginalized in others. So um, so I think that that that's my starting point. Um, in terms of, of, you know, the question of, of why focus on race in the book, I think in part, it is um, a response to some of the, so one of the things that I, I argue in the book is that Contemporary racial politics in the u s is being driven by these different mobilizations around political loss that I frame as black grief and white grievance right so so the 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 emphasis is on um, contemporary racial politics, but I also think that one of the the reasons that i I frame the argument in that way is because I think sometimes in political science. There is a tendency to um, to not pay attention to race in a way that um, skews the way in which we think about what's happening um, in terms of U.S. democracy right now. Right. So if you look at a lot of um, political scientists, they're very concerned about polarization. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. And the argument is we're too polarized, and that's making it difficult for you know the political parties and and people of different Um, political ideologies to work together and it's tearing U.S. democracy apart. Now, that's one way of looking at what's happening. Another way of looking at what's happening if you take, you know, racial politics into account is that part of what you see is that where racial justice is concerned that some of the moments of, let's say, um, when there was less polar polarization and more agreement with the parties were some of the moments where you had, you know, very entrenched mm. racist status quo. Oh. Right. So the 1950s, um, you know, when you had Southern Democrats who were pro segregation, mm. there was some agreement between the parties, but that agreement wasn't good. I mean, it didn't lead to positive outcomes for U.S. democracy in the sense if you're thinking about it as a multiracial democracy. So part of what I what I think is important in this moment is that we need to think about how it is that these things are interacting together. Mm. Right. So it's not just polarization, but what happens when we think about polarization through the lens of these cleavages around. Do we preserve? The racial status quo, or do we try to
0: change it? Hmm. Uh, it's, I, I like the way you, you frame that because I was curious as reading through the book. I mean, obviously, race is, you know, this is a very central part of the book. And so I was I was wondering uh some of the context of, of well, what else what else is there and, and how is that and I, I do appreciate the the framing of that. So you uh, I'm gonna am gonna read something and I want you to 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 elaborate on this, I guess. So you talk about um how, you know, how white folks engage in anticipatory loss. Uh, And I'm curious about how widespread you think that is, whether that's universal for all white folks or is it a majority or just some. And you mentioned early on in the book that, um, that, you know, I'm I'm quoting you here. So is it yet, yet whiteness is not monolithic. Not all white citizens respond to loss with refusal. And also that uh, you say my analysis of white grievance it is thus focused on a particular response to loss among a subset of whites uh, and then you explain how you use white and whiteness so when, when you're talking about you know white americans is it really for kind of elaborate on if i go outside and i just see a white person like they're going to have this idea or is that is that too stereotypical what's i guess the uh the 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 subset of the group, or who is this kind of directed at, or who are you kind of uh, specifically uh, referencing
1: so this again also a very good question um, I think what I'm trying to think about here is to think about you know the folks who um, who are animated by or who feel. Um, moved by this rhetoric of white grievance Um, and this idea, right, that there's a displacement of, um, you know, the sort of central role of, for some people, of um, white men in particular in this country. And for others, it's really more about feeling like there's too many opportunities for other groups and that these compensatory efforts are going too far. And so when I talk about you know this subset, what I want to acknowledge, right, is that not everybody responds, has responded to you know um these efforts to try to address the US's history of um you know racial injustice um in the same way. Right. So they the a lot of the the um 2020 protests were multiracial. There were a lot of white um, white people out there protesting against um racist violence um, you know there are a lot of um folks who support, for example, taking down um confederate statues or other racist monuments um but I think um there are those who don't and who are very clear that they that they don't. I think it's also important to to think about this as um you know maybe not just those clear cases right so um so the rhetoric around for example when when um you know when people talk about um for example voter fraud in these big uh, multiracial cities mm-hmm. or cities that are primarily um non-white there's a clear um you know kind of subtext there which is that their votes are less legitimate right that they Ha- should have less say in how the countries run. But there are other ways in which I think this response comes through, right? So, um, so for example, if you think about something like, you know, there's um, this idea that, that one way to address, for example, disparities in hiring is to have programs that have incentives for non-white groups to, um, for example, be brought into certain professions. Some people might respond to that by saying, I think that it is unfair to white people. And I think that that is an example of, um, of right, a refusal to, to see this as, um, you know, to, to grapple with the entirety of the history of racism and the ways in which you know, trying to address that history will require programs
2: or policies that do try to address um,
1: a history of um, of differences in state policy where some were favored and some were not. And so, part of what I'm trying to think about here is to say, you know, how do we how do we think about that? Right. How do we think about what our response is to these claims? And if our response is to say something is being taken away from me rather than to stop and say, OK, what is what is the history that this is trying to address? Um, and what kind of society do I want to live in? Do I want one that addresses hist- it's the historical wrongs? that it has engaged in, or am I gonna have this sort of knee jerk reaction of saying, oh, I feel like this is taking away um, things from people like me, Mm. right? So that's what I'm trying to address when I say, it's not everyone, um, but I think there are people who are responding in that way, right? Where they see gains for other groups in this zero sum way as a loss for them. So if you think about, you know, a good example of this that doesn't have to do with race is something like marriage equality, right? So why would you care if, um, non-straight people get married? How is that taking away from you? But there are people who literally feel like that is a loss for them. Right. So that for me is an example of, of when you respond to something, um, By seeing a gain for others as a loss for you as responding, um, by turning that into something that you're aggrieved about.
0: So I think kind of what you're saying there with the first point, uh, (laughs) I feel like a lot of white people that I've known and interacted with would never admit that. Now there are certainly plenty of white folks that maybe would admit that and are like, "Yes, this, you know, if if certain people of color are getting ahead, then that means that you know that means just less opportunity for me or other people in my community." There's certainly, but many of, it becomes more nuanced and complicated. I feel with some white folks who would be like, "Of course, of course, I want people of color or different backgrounds or immigrants or whatever to to have a chance and opportunity, etc." But you get more of the, if you will, uh, kind of implicit stuff, right? Kind of the stuff that's underneath the surface where it comes out. Where, But even there, I guess a question I have about that is mm, if I'm trying to understand the root of what you're saying. So many times um, people may be indifferent and or. Uh, just have less of an opinion and or will say, well, I'm against this this thing that someone's not able to get ahead or they don't have an opportunity. But I don't fully agree with the way in which that's being done. I do want this to change. Could we find other ways of having that change where people are able to have that? But I just don't like this particular way, which again, I'm not saying that there has to be a kind of uh, – permission granted or something like that but in terms of dialogue of national dialogue or even between Mm -hmm. groups where it's like okay well you know well how do you want it and you know why is that a problem i think that's fair to ask but what do you do Mm -hmm. in these kind of middle-ish nuanced ways where it gets more complicated where it's like yes i agree with many of these things then there are many people that will say, "Well, if you're not against taking down statues, then you really don't care about what I'm saying." And some people would say, "No, I just think maybe there's a third or fourth way of doing that." How, that's one example. Maybe it's a poor one, but there are other things that are even more complicated. How do you? What about that kind of <laughs> that kind of dance? What do you what do you what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I you know, it, it it's a very. Uh, complicated issue because i think there are people who would say that they have uh strong anti-racist commitments but when you look for example at what um you know at the kind of policies that they support it becomes more complicated one of the distinctions that i make in the book that i think is helpful for thinking about this is between symbolic and material loss mm-hmm and what i mean by that is you know uh symbolic loss for me is something that is um you know it doesn't mean it it's not you know it's not important, but it might be, for example, um, something like taking down a statue, which is a material thing, but at the end of the day, it's not affecting your ability to get a job. It's not affecting your ability to get an education. Right. Right. Um, Or something that actually a lot of people get very upset about casting in films. Right. So Mm -hmm. the whole idea of, of people in these popular franchises like star Wars having more characters of color. A lot of people were very upset about that or the little mermaid being black, you know, these things that you're like, mm-hmm. who cares? Why do you care? But people, some people are are very upset by. And so those are things that I, I put in the category of kind of symbolic loss, mm-hmm. right? That they're not really materially altering people's life chances, but they do create this sense for some of displacement. Mm-hmm. And um and part of what I would say is I think that there's quite a few folks who are like totally, were, not maybe not totally fine, were very much okay with symbolic loss, right? They don't care about their go, you know, black little mermaid, you know, let's, you know, totally fine with, um, with these, um, forms of, with having a you know, black president and black first family, all of these things. Um, But that, but are more, I think, but then issues, it becomes more complicated when we're talking about material loss. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's um, some uh, work that I cite in the book that looks at, you know, how some of cities in blue cities in blue states right, that are supposedly have these majorities that are all for, you know, climate justice, racial justice, all these things. When you look at their tax policies, Mm -hmm. how they fund education, when you look at all of these things, they're actually not that progressive. There is actually real resistance Mm -hmm. to actually changing, for example, things like school funding to um, trying to build low-income or middle-income housing in certain areas, right? So those are, are more material changes that I think is where you start to see some of this um, this resistance that's really about, okay, in principle, I might support these goals, but it becomes more difficult when it might mean, okay, I might, in order to do that in my backyard, mm-hmm. that might require me to support a transformation in my neighborhood that might affect the price of my home. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? th- those are the cities that that change the name of the school and the streets but they don't change the tax policy or they don't change the housing or education policy, right, right, right. Which in some ways I mean I don't think it's better or worse but it definitely feels a little hypocritical in some ways and you know maybe maybe people, you know, there's some ignorance there but I think in a lot of cases it's you know it's it's easy to do sometimes the symbolic thing and it's much harder to do the the more material thing again each situation is is different so i guess how does then like how there there seems to be again um there is this kind of um, i guess there's a, a a bunch of steps to this but for some white folks it does seem to be very difficult for them to recognize you know black suffering um or Or even the reverse that they'll, you know, they can't do that, or it's very difficult, and they'll push for, you know, that they're sort of, you know, this white victimhood kind of thing, which is interesting. Again, on on a racial uh, playing field, I'm, I'm leaving out, you know, poverty and class and things like that. It's a little bit different, I guess. But why do you think it's difficult still for some for some white folks to kind of recognize that? When I talk to different types of people, um. I think at the end of the day, you want people to see somebody as a human, as a person that has a family Mm -hmm. and cares about many of the same things you care about and acknowledge that things are a little bit different. It's not saying that you have to do anything about that or you have to take the blame for all of that necessarily, but acknowledging at the very least, that's a little bit different if you're black or if you're Brown. And I guess like, I guess like kind of acknowledging the, you know, a, a potential experience that someone that is a person of color, their experience in the world, that seems just the acknowledgement of that still very difficult for a lot of white folks. And it, I feel like it does become a kind of strange inwardness of like looking at them or, you know, what did you know, what do I have to play in this or what did my ancestors have to play in this? Is is it some of that, that resistance or is it just ignorance or is it i mean in some cases it is just racism but what do you think it is that has still this resistance or this well what about my victimhood kind of thing it does that kind of bouncing back what do you what do you think this is so difficult still
1: so i think there are a couple of things that um are useful to to think about here one of them is i think that You know, there is one of the things that I talk about in the book is this idea that white grievance is in part motivated by um, this desire to preserve racial innocence. Mm. And what I mean by that is that um, it's very difficult for a lot of people to accept that, um, you know, this country is founded on ongoing injustices, Mm -hmm. That are just as foundational as the sort of, you know, um uh you know commitments to freedom, et cetera, that we like to um to point to when we think about you know, what the US stands for. And so I think that um there there is both a you know a sense that it's it's somehow for some deeply threatening to acknowledge that, right? That that is somehow making you know um is this discourse of um that is taking away from the the you know this idea of us exceptionalism but i think the other part of it is 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 this notion that um you know um i'm not wanting to be implicated in that past right um so even folks who might for example be willing to say okay yes of course everybody now thinks you know slavery was was a terrible thing, but if you get once you get closer to home and you start thinking about things like residential segregation mm-hmm. right and we know from the work of of you know sociologists that um, not only is home ownership the largest source of wealth for many, many Americans but that that um, uh, wealth has created a black uh, white black wealth gap mm-hmm. because of patterns of of um, you know racist mortgage lending, residential segregation, um, all of these policies that were implemented or redlining things that were supported by the federal government and the banking system. And so I think once you start thinking about it in that way and then it becomes more of a question of, um, I mean, it doesn't mean anybody's gonna come away and take away your house, right? But it, it might mean, right, that you might have to think about, I don't know, your grandparents in a different way, or you might want to have to think, you might have to think about why they moved to the suburbs in a different way. And I think people find that very difficult, um, to do, um, you know, because it, it might, um, it might mean that you have to grapple with, you know, a kind of complicated past, not just for the country, but, um your family your neighborhood your city you know um i think the other um the other thing that i would say in
2: response to that is that um there's also the
1: the fact that we you know as a as a country right um we have not been Um, the history of this country is not one where there has been the same level of care and concern for the suffering of of everyone um, who is a part of the country, right? So there's been, I think, one of the things that I think that I'm trying to get to in the book is that, you know, there's been a way in which Black suffering has been accepted, right? That it's been seen um, and that, and that it's ends up being seen as this thing that actually drives racial progress. Right. So, so, and, and this is, you know, the result of things like, um, you know, I talk about this in the book about, um, you know, how we expect black protesters in particular to take on this kind of self-sacrificial Role right to be the perfect protester and to take right private grief like Mamie Till Mobley, the mother of Emmett Till, and then put it to public use to try to bring about um, racial progress. And I think there's a you know that on the one hand, while we might you know there's a a discourse around these as heroic moments, there's a way in which we come to then um, be far too comfortable Mm -hmm. with right? The suffering of some as this thing that eventually will lead to a better outcome.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I definitely want to ask you about that. I know it's towards the end of the book that I, I was, um, I don't want to say happy, but I was glad that you pointed that bit out because I think some people don't realize that, or they don't put the two and two together. And it's like, Oh, well, wait a minute. Like this is somebody's, you know, they, they, they lost a family member. Like this is something that is. I mean that's a hard time and it it many times if it's a, it's a national spotlight or whatever they don't really get to kind of mourn and grieve that in the way that you know somebody that's I mean these are private citizens many of the times and so many mm-hmm. other people when they don't have a national spotlight they're able to you know have their privacy and, and a lot of times people don't and then you have people making political statements about it one way or the other and it just becomes kind of a circus terribly so so Another theme that comes up in the book, which is which is interesting, um, I'd be curious for you to give give us the full download here is how essential is loss uh, for the centrality of democracy, and that we accept this reality uh, for all groups in their particular way. so so, for example, uh, you know how how do we understand this again? This this idea of, of of loss politically as being connected to democracy that that you make that jump that connection and and I'm curious as to as to how you do that and why it's it's central to democracy.
2: Yes, yeah, so
1: in that part of the book, I'm building on the work of Daniel Allen, who you know made this argument that loss is a central, um, civic capacity, right? It's something that we all have to learn to do as citizens because we're not always going to win every political argument, or we're not always going to be able to, you know, have our preferred outcome. And so, um, and so, you know, one of the, the things that, that she says and which I then build on in the book is this idea that um, in democracy, we're, um, you know, we expect or write the, the way in which we think about democracies as this empowering thing. Right. So you you exercise your power in, in um, conjunction with others and you get your preferred policy initiatives and um, programs adopted. But in fact, the experience of democracy most of the time is of losing, yes. right? It's so, you know, how many times have we all not gone to vote and then <laughs> our candidate loses, our issues don't yeah, win the day, right. right? And and we have to grapple with that. And we have to, for democracy to function, we have to accept that. Mm-hmm. And we have to, I mean, assuming that, you know, all the rules were followed and it was fair and, and legitimate, mm-hmm. a fair and legitimate election. But if we don't, I mean, what happens is that democracy falls apart and we get these kind of um, turns to authoritarianism. And I think we're seeing that very much so happening in, you know, a lot of states in the United States today. Um, um, If you look at what's happening in Wisconsin right now, for example, where there was a you know, a Supreme Court justice who was elected, who's gonna change the composition of the court. And now she hasn't even done anything. And the legislature is talking about impeaching her because they don't want to accept mm. the will of the voters, mm. which was to elect her, which they knew would change the composition of the court. And that's an example of, of saying, oh, I, I will not accept that loss. Mm-hmm. And I will change the rules after the fact so that I can continue to exercise political power as I want to, mm-hmm. and when you have that happening, um, you know, you don't have democracy. Mm-hmm. I mean, democracy is you're turning to authoritarianism mm-hmm. at that point, and so that's why I talk about um, you know losses as being central to democracy because part of what I want to um, I want to say is that. Maybe, maybe we would be, maybe it would be easier. I mean, those moments are difficult, right? It's difficult oh, to have your candidate sure. lose. It's difficult to lose a policy battle. But part of what I, I, I think um, might help is if, if instead of telling people, oh, you know what democracy does is it empowers you and you get to, to say, yeah, it does that. But it also means that sometimes you lose. And that's as central to being a good democratic citizen as it is to go out there, yes, you still keep trying to get you don't give up, mm-hmm. right you still keep trying until you get what you want at, i mean until you you can create a majority around your position but um but losing right accepting loss is just as central um to the experience of being a good democratic citizen
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, I mean
0: I think that the most Obvious example of this is, uh, in terms of elections, is, you know, I mean, you could have whatever opinions you have about Hillary Clinton, but she did concede. She did accept the loss. It was fair. I mean, there is the whole investigation to it afterwards, and it looks like it wasn't uh, as much as some people thought it was. And there was certainly some meddling. But the point is, is that she accepted the loss and conceded it. And, I mean, that was super tough um in a lot of ways uh and but she did that and 4 years later we had uh a president that definitely lost there was no foul play we all saw that and know that we had plenty of you know recounts and we did the whole court thing we did it the way you're supposed to and didn't you know president trump didn't uh accept the loss uh, i don't think he ever conceded and that's not how democracy works. Uh, it's just not. And so it's, 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 it's this wild juxtaposition, <laughs> excuse me, four years apart, <laughs> you know, of a presidential election where, you know, you see that. And I and I also think it's this one this weird thing of, you know, anytime you have to when you're a bad loser, you just have to make a tax on either the person or you make a tax on uh uh you know some of the institutions right so if this doesn't agree with what i want it to agree with then well it must be the court's problem or it must be that secretary of states problem or it must be the ag's problem they must not have and you at a certain point if you keep doing that then you just don't have anything right it's just like how how long are you going to keep doing that really and don't to be fair i mean there is corruption in different places and you know but i, I find all that stuff so uh, frustrating because there there is certainly corruption everywhere and there is in the United States, but not nearly as much corruption as there is in so many other elections in so many other countries around the world, where that is a legitimate challenge in 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 many ways. And so uh I I I'm glad that you said it down in, in the book of this idea of how yes, democracy can be powerful but it also sucks sometimes because you lose, <laughs> and if your policy or your you know uh uh amendment or whatever you know topic you were voting for or your person or whatever doesn't doesn't win you gotta you gotta take the owl and that's that's how it is, and that's it's very very difficult i guess the the last thing I wanna to say about white folks and we can we can uh move forward on this is um. So class. So, what is this intersection of of white grievance and class? Um, I, I talked about this a little bit in the beginning about how understanding loss or, or excuse me, uh, grievance through the lens of class isn't quite enough, and how, you know, how how can, I mean, anybody generally, but how can you know white folks in particular? learn to accept that like look you're gonna have political loss and you don't have to make it a grievance. Like how what does that kind of look like in your mind?
1: Yeah, I mean I think this question of, of class is super important, right? Because one of the ways in which people often um you know uh try to explain this moment of backlash or white grievance, um, is to say that it's, it's really a class phenomenon, right? That it's about, um, the so-called white working class. Um, and for me, that's, um, problematic, um, on a number of levels. One of them is, you know, um, my empirical political science colleagues have shown that in fact, um, you know, there was support, for example, for however you want to, for for Trump, um, uh, as you know, in his attempt to be re- reelected, um, across income levels, right? So this idea, and I mean, if you take that as a kind of proxy, let's say, for or something of the sort. Um, so the point of this is to say that I think we make a mistake if we think about this as simply um, a war, you know, an issue of, of of class. There are a lot of folks I think who are very um, motivated by the sense of, of 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 grievance who are not in fact suffering from economic loss or dispossession and so um, and so I think that that that's one thing that's important to keep in mind. I think the other thing to 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 think about is that um, you know historically one of the places in which um, you've had for example the motor that has led to um, moderate the moderating of um, you know kind of racial resentment has been unions. Mm-hmm. So it's So it's in fact possible, right, and it has happened historically for white working class people to make common cause with other working class people. And so I think we make a mistake if we assume that it's simply social class. And I think the other thing to think about here is that, you know, one of the reasons that folks are attributing, let's say, the undoubted economic losses that a lot of Parts of this country are are, um, are experiencing that they're attributing it to, let's say, an influx of immigrants or whoever it is, is because elites are telling them that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's because there is a whole infrastructure of folks who are saying this is what is happening to you and why. Mm-hmm. So I think that this is the other thing um, that we need to to think about: what role are these narratives and um, this? that, right, blame some racial other for what what are undoubtedly, you know, wildly unequal um, life chances, you know, um, an enormous widening of inequality, um, socioeconomic inequality in this country, um, that it's being attributed to these things like immigration, when in fact it has to do with other kinds of policies that favor let's say the 1% or that don't really create you know um an adequate safety net that don't really make education affordable without going into you know enormous amounts of debt for a lot of people right so there are all of these policies that are creating these huge inequalities but but we're being told to blame them on these um these other um, folks were then racialized or othered in these ways.
0: Yeah. I think something along those lines that, I mean, always kind of resonates with me is, is that many of the inequalities in the United States are going to impact many people. It's going to impact you. It's going to impact me. It's going to impact everybody, no matter what your gender or race is, right? It's going to impact you and many times uh, negatively. I think what is strange to me of why people have a hard time with this is it is going to negative, more often than not, unfortunately, negatively impact women, people of color, et cetera. And that's not to say, I think people don't hear this, that it doesn't impact white dudes or white women. Of course it does. Of course. Of course it does. I mean, you know. But it is, there's another variable or another two or three variables that are going to unfortunately disadvantage them. And I don't understand why it's hard for people to see, at the least, ripple effects of, you know, generations of laws or policies that, at the very least, just didn't give a shit about those groups. And so I'm not sure why that's hard for people to really see. You don't have to go so far as to say like your grandparents made the laws that put them there, but it's, you know, you can understand that like, Hey, there's a history here that sucks. And how do we, you know, change that? But you can't really change those things if you don't recognize at the very least the ripple effects of some of those things and say, okay, well, how do we, you know, how how do we make sure we, we change this differently? We don't exclude people but we certainly don't want to if there are more variables and i don't think it's victimizing them either if there are more variables to consider for certain groups they're going to need more resources they're going to need more things that makes just logical sense to me but i think sometimes maybe it's i don't know maybe it's the rhetoric or the way people come out that people have resistance to it i don't know but uh, i'm hopeful that people sort of get that <laughs> and they see that and you don't have to feel bad about yourself or something like that it's just like okay how do we acknowledge and then how do we you know kind of try to move to, to change that um so let's talk about uh, you know sort of the we, we, we talked about white folks a lot so let's let's talk about uh, black folks a little bit uh you talk about many types of resistance and protesting and all these things. So I'm, I'm some more easy topics to discuss with no controversy. So how do we, how do you think about nonviolent, uh, resistance? What does that mean? And, you know, in 2020, um, yeah, I mean, we heard a lot of criticism about, I mean, it, 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 so this is how it is in my, in my memory, um, in my collective memory, if you will uh protest for sure. Uh rallies, marches, and and rioting, uh, I, I think is is fair to say. Um how do we feel about all of those ways and what's the utility about that in terms of some people say that some of those or all of those are different modes or different expressions of injustice. And we can't uh you know, kind of manage or monitor all of that. People are going to do what they're going to do, but some people, many people say it's too far, things like that. So how do we understand different types of resistance, violent or nonviolent, different types of, you know, protesting or rioting? How do we understand some of these, uh, kind of the boundaries and contours of these things?
2: Um, Yeah, this is... Obviously, you know um a very um important question I think
1: one of the things that i i am i think needs to be the starting point for thinking about these questions is to think about the different ways in which we perceive protest um, uh, and how that shapes um the way in which we we think about what's acceptable. So so one of the things that I argue in the book is that we have this kind of romantic account of the civil rights movement of the 1960s, right? Which has become this kind of um, iconic moment of civil disobedience where people were super civil and they were, you know, um, smartly dressed, you know, they were the, the, the perfect protesters. And, um, and because they allowed themselves to suffer violence without retaliation, that this then changed um, um, hearts and minds, and, and people came to support their cause. And this is, this is this narrative that we have, and it then shapes subsequent protest movements, right? So if you don't, if you aren't quote unquote civil in that way, if you you know, if there happens to be um, some sort of violence that breaks out at a protest, then this becomes, you know, you're you're departing from this model and it's illegitimate. Um now, one of the things that I think is problematic about this is that first of all, it misunderstands or we are misremembering our history um of the 1960s, which is that these weren't these um, you know it wasn't that there was widespread support or people for civil rights protesters or that people saw them as um as these ideal protesters that they embraced there was a lot of actually even um criticism of dr king right who has become this very um non-controversial figure I mean, um he, now
0: i did get killed i mean so
1: <laughs> right <laughs> I mean, right that's
0: the obvious thing there right i mean goodness
1: mm mm-hmm. Um, And and then the other part that we 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 tend not to look at is think about somebody like Colin Kaepernick, Mm -hmm. right, who was or other um, um, athletes who knelt during um, the national anthem. That is as peaceful a protest as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. Right. There's absolutely no violence. And people were absolutely equally upset Mm -hmm. by that and found that problematic. Right. So. Part of what I want to, um, I think we need to understand is that this perception of what constitutes a violent protest or who's rioting and who's protesting is very much informed by these historical um, precedents and racialized. Um, I I cite this quote in the book of um, Ron Johnson, the senator from uh, Wisconsin, who said about the January 6th rioters that um, he wasn't concerned about them, and he didn't call them rioters, right? Um, but he would have been if they had been, he said, um, BLM or Antifa protesters. And the point of this, right, right, is because there is this sense in which we see some people as already, right, violent, and no matter what they do, their protests are illegitimate or are examples of, of of rioting and others even when they do riot right we perceive them or or some will insist on on saying they're patriots and they're law-abiding citizens right so part of this of of what i think we need to keep in mind when we have these discussions is that these you know these assessments about what constitutes peaceful protest versus rioting are very much themselves um, weighted in these ways, and also I think um, and so and so if we take that into account, I think one of the things that it allows us perhaps to see is that these moments of um, of tension or of confrontation um,
2: are always um, complicated
1: and depend on how people in who are participating in them, on what they do, but also on how those of us who are outside of them are, are reading them. And so, you know, part of, of 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 what I argue is that you know when we make these claims about civil disobedience, we also need to think about you know how is that. How is that imposing a kind of um, expectation that certain kinds of protesters can never meet because they're already always perceived as violent or rioting or whatever, no matter what they're actually doing?
0: So I have, I have two questions here. One is about civil rights movement, and uh, one is about rioting. So there's. Um, two points, I guess, I want to make, or two sub points I want to make about the civil rights movement, which I want to ask you about. The first is uh, I recently talked with uh, Hajari Esdiha. She, she wrote this book. Um, oh, I'm forgetting the title. Oh, <laughs> she'll be ter- terribly upset at me for forgetting it. But she wrote this book about Dr. King's legacy and civil rights movement. And she mentions this idea of collective memory and how people will kind of mm-hmm. co opt now this 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 uh his legacy and you know act like it was all they were all for it from the beginning of course right you know we were always for mlk we were always for you know civil rights but you know kind of what you're saying there's this romantic narrative of like yeah it was you know Mm -hmm. it's i mean that's the same people that are now kind of very you know enthusiastic about it are the same people that would have had the most grotesque vulgar things to say at the time and so you know it's just quite obnoxious, not to mention that she, in her book, she talks about different types of groups that use the, the civil rights movement, the spirit of it. Then there's complications with that, right? For some folks, it might be that it's just, you know, is this just for African-American community? You know, do, does, you know, do immigrants get the right to, to kind of take from some of those themes You know, do, does the LGBTQ get to take from some of those things? Cause everyone wants to have their civil rights movement and there's this kind of um, uh, way in which it becomes into our memory of of how we think about this, right? Where there's a kind of uh, there's this myth around it of sorts, right? Like it's obviously a thing that happened in all these things, but it's more of like the it starts to become larger than life in some ways. And it's important to remember the realities, which is sort of some of the things you're saying there. So I'm curious about what you think about how people co-opt kind of that movement. Second po- point, sub point on that is. Uh, I have a friend of mine who, you know, she's talked about this uh, a little bit. You know, her and I have had conversations about this. About, you know, how do you have different, different, um, uh, specifically within the Black community, different kinds of ways of of advocating for yourself or for justice or for things like that at different times. Um, I think the, the example she gives is is that you know. During slavery, well, an underground railroad made sense, right? Because, you know, your, your literal life was in, in danger. Um, you wouldn't do an underground railroad in the 60s or 70s, at least not so on the nose in that way. Um, so protesting and marches and all those things made sense. There was, okay, you know, we have some standing here, but we, we want equality truly for in you know, our laws and how we vote and housing, all these things. So protesting and movements uh in masses of people made sense and so i think her question which i resonate with is well maybe in well you know in 2023 maybe we need to find another alternative way right there are people that are you know we've had a black president we have a black vice president we have senators and representatives and people in supreme court okay we there are black folks that are in positions of power within the system that we have for all of its its faults, and all, there's good parts to it as well, maybe we need to be more creative in how we have for this time a different way. That's not to say that protests or things like that aren't good or useful or things like that, but maybe we're putting too much energy at this time frame of history uh, into something that is 60 years old at this point. We need to update to find different ways of doing that. So sorry, this is a lot. So what are your thoughts on the whole kind of, you know, civil rights movement and people co-opting it now with different groups? And what do you think about how this ties into some of that romanticism piece? And then this idea of what are other maybe more effective ways of trying to, if you will, protest or 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 call for uh, uh, kind of equal rights for, for black folks and, and maybe other folks uh, at large?
1: So the co-opting of the memory of the civil rights movement, I think, is is a, a real problem. Um, you know, um I cite someone in the book who who said that um MLK would have been ashamed of Black Lives Matter protesters, which is just, you know, um mind-boggling. But I think um it's of a piece, right, with this sense that um, you know, this sanitized memory actually that we now have of the civil rights movement and of the 1960s and of how change happens right so there is the sense oh they were very civil and then everybody agreed and um and there was you know this not it was not conflictual and change happened and you know and this goes back to my point about polarization, right? Which is to say that actually the way that change happens is often messy and difficult, and it's not this very, you know, this the often the result of these very civil debates, right? That that um, that what we need to so I think part of the problem with this. Um, sanitized memory of the civil rights movement is that it it focuses folks on questions of civility rather than on questions of of how social change happens, right? So we focus on how people are protesting. Are they protesting in the right way so that we will admit that their demands have merit rather than focusing on what are their demands What's the problem that they've identified that we need to fix? Right. And and I think this is a pattern that we see over and over, right? So we deflect away from the harm or the injustice that people are actually trying to make visible and instead get into these endless debates about are they protesting in the right way? Mm-hmm. Um and um and this is in in some ways. I think um, you know your your friend's point is is well taken, right? So, um, so I think the question is, you know, how do we think about what what effective forms of black politics, other forms of of you know um, of um, you know. Um, protests against um uh, or demands for um you know other forms of justice climate justice you know um whatever the the issue may be like what do those look like today and they're not going to look exactly the same as they did you know 60 years ago 20 years ago i mean you know if you think about something um you know um just think about abortion, right? And how things have changed in terms of where we are today just from, you know, 2 years ago in terms of the landscape, mm-hmm. the overturning of Roe, right? So we're in this, I think we are in a in a moment where um you know, these folks are having these debates on and, and and the the question I think um if you look at for example the movement for black lives, there is a lot of, um, this among various groups and various activists about, right. Do you try to keep up, right. Um, mass protests in the streets. Do you try to work through existing political parties? Do you try to try to work through, do you, you know, organize to, um, you know, try to get, um, punitive prosecutors out. Do you, you know, like, where do you, focus your energies. And, um, and these questions, I think are ones that, um, you know, people have been asking themselves for, you know, they were asking themselves these questions in the sixties as well. And before then, right. So fired, Rustin has this essay when he talks about from protest to politics, you know, and there's, you know, I'm not endorsing his analysis there. There's many things in it I disagree with, but I'm just using it as an example to say that these questions about, you know, how, what's the most effective way to try to um, bring about social change um, are absolutely persistent questions. And, And in this moment, I think we're facing an added complication, which is that, you know, the US has never been a full democracy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's because it 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 has excluded various people or only um, partially, it, you know, allowed them the full status of citizenship. And now we're in a moment where you're seeing these anti-democratic measures, things like attempts at voter suppression, right? The, you know, attempts, for example, to or in states where people don't want college-age kids to vote because they think they're going to vote a certain way, right? There are all of these ways or, or restrictions on um, various forms of voting. Um, so there are all of these ways in which part of the problem, too, with U.S. democracy is that, um, you know, it's not clear, right? People say, oh, you know, vote. That's But voting... Um, is only going to get you so far if the institutions are set up in such a way that your vote is not cannot really be translated even if you win a majority or it's set up in ways to, to um that you know um make certain um votes count less so i do think this is a moment where there are all kinds of um questions that that we need to ask about the structure of US democracy right how do we make it actually a more effective democracy and how do we do that in a way that um allows people to to feel like they can actually implement change
0: it, it reminds me of this conversation i had with a friend not that long ago where i'm I, you know i'm, I'm definitely a, a liberal i'd say probably more moderate liberal in a lot of ways and he's definitely not and he asked me he goes you know you you, you you can always hear people's points of view and their perspectives and he yeah, so he goes, what what's the thing that you get animated about? Like, what's your like passion? He's like, you, you know, yeah, I care about climate change. You know, yes, racial injustice, wealth inequality. Said, what's like your thing? <laughs> I said, I have the very boring but really important thing I really care about. The thing that gets me going, he goes, yeah, what is it? I said, gerrymandering. I think which is the most unsexy, boring thing to really, but I get really, really invested in that because that is a i'm I'm really really invested in how do you reform institutions and that's a i mean that is connected with uh you know some voter ID laws and things like that, but gerrymandering is essential because it's it's not I could go on and on about this so I won't but it's one of those things where it's has to deal with your sense of what you call home. It has to deal with your sense of community. It has to deal with your sense of space, it's how you identify it with your class, with race. It touches on all of those things. And if you have a district in where you're voting with people that have none of your other interests, that's not to say that you disqualify those people, but – there should be a way. If you're trying to build local communities in a way that coalesces around certain things, you you should not have that where your interests are not taken into consideration. Because you know you have you know you you draw the line so you get all of this so that way you can get someone that doesn't accurately represent you in Congress. That's preposterous for me. And I I. I that's like my. That's my. Thing. That's, that's that's the thing. I get. But it's just it's such a. And you're like, oh, that's just very, you know, like impersonal and cold, and you don't have like the real emotional kind of causes. And it's like, I mean, yes, maybe, but we all need that. If we don't have that, we're all screwed. We need to have things that are accurate to population, to to our senses. I mean, I got really upset about the. You know, the bullshit that the Trump administration was doing with the census in 2020. I mean, that's really important. That's really, really important. So, you know, I, I have other friends that care about many other issues, but that's one. And so this this comes up for me of, of like, this is something we need to, be, how do we have mobilization on, yes, it's not going to have a a cool, catchy, you know, hashtag or, <laughs> or social media campaign, or it's really, you know, hard to get people interested in that. I get it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think, I think it's, uh, Obama and, um, uh, Holder. I think that's right. They have this, uh, or they're loosely associated with this redistricting campaign to try and make it fair and equitable and things like that. And I, you know, I greatly applaud that, that work. So anyways, that's my, my tangent there. My, (laughs) but that stuff's important. That stuff's really important for, for, for moving, a lot of many of the things we've discussed.
1: Absolutely. It's the nuts and bolts of democracy, right? So, um, you know, one of the things about thinking about um, what is it that we're asking of people is, you know, when, um, when people criticize, for example, young people, right, this sort of, you know, often repeated thing, young people don't vote and this is a problem, right? But, you know, maybe people don't vote because they don't think that their vote will actually make a difference because of these ways in which we've set up the system, things like gerrymandering, et cetera, where they know that it is in fact an uphill climb. And so I think that in addition to saying, oh, vote, we also have to, like you said, think about the ways in which the system um, is set up so that people can't actually, um, have their interests represented or work through, right, the, the, the sort of, um, accepted, um, channel. So when people say, well, why are you rioting or why are you doing this? Well, maybe people feel like they don't actually have a way of, um, getting heard or having Mm -hmm. their, um, their interests represented because those other, Channels have failed them, or are set up not to listen to them. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I know people that I know people talk about this in kind of a, in a way that's maybe not always fair, but in in Georgia and there were other places where people were saying, like, "I'm not going to go wait in a line that long and might not even be able to get to vote." I mean, that's unacceptable. That's unacceptable. That should not happen at all in twenty. Well, it was, this is twenty twenty two, but in twenty twenty three, that should not happen. That, that should not happen at all in any place. For the what is it, you know, the greatest, biggest, whatever, whatever country? I mean, that's that's unacceptable. And so, yeah, there's there's issues there. And so, it's, you know, it's it's a, it's a thing a thing we keep we'll have to keep working on. And there are many many issues. And so, I, I always tell people like, well, we, we need folks that are very very passionate in doing the work on racial injustice and climate change. And I'll be over here in a little corner. You know, I'll I'll cheer you on and I'll I'll support all those causes too, but I'll <laughs> I'll be worried about the redistricting, <laughs> the real nerdy, boring thing. But you know, it's important too.
1: <laughs> well, and you know, your example also, um, you know, is related to one of the the things that I you know I hope that this book will get us to think about, which is you know, whenever there is an election, right? There's always this these articles lauding the heroic people and they are heroic who stayed in line for eight hours waiting to mm-hmm. vote against the folks who were you know they will always the the you know the sort of elderly african-american mm-hmm. you know person who's like 80 years old and, and determined to have their vote cast and those people are heroic but the question we need to be asking is why are we asking them to be heroes it should not be this difficult no, to vote and so no, absolutely And so, the right. So, part of it is that, you know, when we say um, that this is a civic virtue, what we're not looking at is what are the civic deficiencies in our democracy that require people to be heroic.
0: Yeah. In my view, it is so much easier to vote in so many other countries. It's on a Sunday, they have a day off, all these things. Like, we make it, and, and I don't think that's by accident. We make it impossible sometimes for people to vote. You know, there's only a certain amount of time they're open. There's only you know a handful of people. The machines aren't up to date. It's on a Tuesday in the middle of November. You know what I mean? Like it's just there, there's ways we can make this so much easier, and we actively don't, and that is intentional by people uh, in power. And it's frustrating. It's, at the very least, it's frustrating. So, but yes. <laughs> um, so okay, one 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 topic here I want to I want to ask you about is um i i was i was curious, i you know when i read books i try not to have expectations of where they're going um so i i didn't I, I didn't you know kind of pick up on this so i'm glad you mentioned it in the book which is black uh maternal grief right and you give a kind of uh history from different thinkers you talk about some modern things such as in films and things like that about um how to how you you mention this idea of how grief has been central for better, for worse, for representations of, of, you know, for black women and black mother, uh, womanhood. Um, I mean, aside from it being very important, why did you decide to fit this in here with the topic of the books you're considering and why is it important to, to, to consider that and to, to understand this?
2: Absolutely. So, um,
1: you know, One of the things that I talk about in the book is this idea that um, Black politics has really been um, mobilized by these moments of um, public, private grief turned public mourning, right? So um, the funeral of Emmett Till, which is often credited with really galvanizing um, the civil rights movement. and you know these other moments um, of you know folks being killed, and then this this mobilization, right this very public grief that then becomes a catalyst for mobilization and part of the the reason to focus on black maternal grief in particular was because that um, you know that arc right um, is has actually been gendered in particular ways, right so women are cast often as those who grieve and men are often the victims, those who are being grieved um, and and this I think um, um, you know creates particular um, burdens and expectations, and part of the the chapter is really trying to think about you know I begin the chapter on black maternal grief by talking about Erica Gardner and you know who who died so young after becoming an activist in um, after um her father Eric Gardner was killed and she 's you know she 's a kind of odd example right because she wasn 't his mother, she was his daughter, but part of of using her. As an example, was to to say, you know, one of the things that happens when we focus um, on these moments of, um, you know, people who turn from grief to grievance, right? The people who have to become activists in the wake of the killing of their loved ones is that we not only lose sight of the toll on them, right? So Erica Gardner, who died so tragically young. Um, but also of all the other ways in which people are dying that is not that is not at the hands of, let's say, the state or agents of the state like the police, right? So she dies after, you know, um, she has um, of a heart attack and she had had complications after giving birth to her children. And we know there are huge disparities um, in Black maternal mortality and Black infant mortality. And so part of it, um, I think, of the of really focusing on on black maternal grief is to say, um, you know, what are the ways in which people are dying um, that are more ordinary, let's say not not being killed by the state um, that we also need to pay attention to, but also, right, how do we think about these patterns and think about the added burdens that People take on in order to become activists and do this work of trying to make, um, you know, um, change and bring about racial justice—something that benefits all of us—but that is is an enormous burden for for those activists.
0: Yeah, and I, I wonder how much of it is. I mean, that's a that's a that's a that's a tricky kind of landscape to navigate through i can imagine right i mean which is yes how do you want to be productive how do you want to be useful but also how much of the your own grief are you dealing with kind of externally as a way of trying there has to be such so much you know kind of going on with that and i i i have the the same uh, you know kind of worry that you have that you talk about in the book of not uh of how the activism or too much spotlight on one person when they've lost someone can be uh, tricky. It can be difficult for the person involved and people you know, want to think that this one incident represents everything and, or you're getting too much criticism and heat. And I think that it's, it is a, a tricky thing to kind of, to to na- to navigate for. Uh, on that point, I guess you make this one distinction between salvaging and repairing and why that distinction is important for understanding loss. So what, 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 are you, what are you trying to say between these two concepts?
2: So what I'm trying to get at is this
1: idea that um, I think we, we, you know, one of the central narratives in the book is this idea that we ask certain people to be heroes to be political heroes, right? So we ask them to make these sacrifices over and over um, for the sake of sort of repairing the injustices of US democracy. Um, And this to me sets up, you know, a number of of problems. One of them is, is who are the groups who are constantly being asked to do this important political labor, right? And who is exempt from it, right? So these differences in in, um, in who is expected to be heroic in this way. Um, but the other thing is that I think when we talk in this language of repair, or we think about um, these moments as moments where we can, you know, make these um, these fixes, that we sort of are already um, setting up expectations about the scale of change, right? So, um, if you think about, you know, home repairs, or you're repairing your car, right? The idea is you don't have to go out and buy a new car, or you don't have to go and 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 um, you know get a new dishwasher. You can repair the one because it's pretty good. It just had a part that needs to be replaced, and part of what I think the distinction between repair and salvaging can help us to see is that when we begin from this assumption that the, you know, um, you, you know, let's say U.S. democracy is is fundamentally sound, but it, you know, we need to tinker around the edges and fix these little things. We don't see the scale of the problem, and we also limit our imaginations, right? So, oh, we might, you know allow people to vote by mail, but we won't look at the ways in which, um, you know, something like the, um, the Senate, um, right. Um, over gives over represents rural areas at the expense of, um, urban areas. Right. So they're all, so part of what I want to suggest when I talk about the distinction between repair and repairing and salvaging is that salvaging, which means, right, you take maybe from shipwreck or you take the, you take something that has been discarded and you build something new from it is to say, how do we expand our imaginations to think about, okay, if we want to have um, a democracy that is truly um, equal for everyone, what does that look like? And how do we not assume that it's healthy and well and we just need to make these little minor adjustments
0: yeah i guess the the last question i have for you is this idea of the, the, the one thing that resonates me with me in conversation in the book is this idea of you know democracy means you're going to lose sometimes which is which is true and and i think it's you know hopefully we can we can have uh um, you know less losses for. Uh, important causes of course how do we as a country continue to have a democracy or we we strive for democracy for everyone by wrestling with some of the dark chapters of our history and the the ripple effects of that and try to move forward with this kind of acceptance and empathy and, and, and true inclusion how do you how do you see you know your book contributing to some of those conversations we need to have?
1: So I hope that the book will help, help us to think about how we might think about loss differently, you know, and how we might come to see that if we come to see, um, that democracy is, is, is always involves loss. Um, and if we come to think about the fact that people are mobilizing around loss, that we can think about ways of, of, um, of approaching it differently. So one of the um, what I mean by this is, you know, often when I've presented parts of the book in the past, people, their reaction is like, oh, it's, you know, but loss is so hard, right? How do we present it not as a loss, but as a gain? And I kind of resist that impulse in mm-hmm. part because part of what I want to say is it's okay to lose sometimes. Mm-hmm. And it's and we have to learn to sit with loss. And some of us have, unfortunately, Um, had to have that experience and others have not. And that if we can all accept that we are not always, that we are sometimes going to lose, that that might give us um, a better orientation to how to be good democratic citizens than saying, oh, you know, if you're not winning um, or being, you know, you're a loser in a very pejorative sense, right? And think about even like that designation, you're a loser, Right. So so we have no way of thinking about, um, you know, this question of of, of that, that loss is a normal human experience. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. And um, and that particular democratic politics, it's inescapable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: I, I, I totally agree. Well, the book is called Black Grief, White Grievance, The Politics of Loss. This is out through uh, Princeton. Um, where are the, uh, the best places to, uh, to find yourself or any place that you want to direct people in particular?
1: So you can order the book will be, um, uh, published on October 3rd and it's available for pre-order now um, at the Princeton University Press website or at um, Amazon, and you can go to my website if you want to see where I'll be speaking about it in the next few months. Yeah,
0: it's wonderful. Yeah, that's, that's great. Everyone should get out there and and hear you speak and get the book. And uh, my only regret about this conversation is that we didn't talk about uh, any of your work in in Latin America and, and and many of the studies there, as 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 uh. As the, the child of, a, uh, of an immigrant from Central America, that's uh, that's depressing for me. We didn't get to that, but that just leaves enough room for us for next time. So it's been such a, a wonderful honor and privilege to have you come on and talk about your, your wonderful work and how you're trying to think through these issues. And uh, I really had a, a wonderful time talking with you about it.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it. It was a, a great conversation. And I guess you'll just have to have me back on to that's, talk
0: that's about right. That's right. America. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. Thanks so much.